Welcome to Evidence-Based, a new Harbinger psychology podcast. We're your hosts, Cassie and Kendall. On today's episode, we're talking about cutting ties with toxic family members. We're joined by Dr. Sherry Campbell, a licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in helping healthy people cut ties with the toxic people in their lives. She is a nationally recognized expert on family estrangement, a best-selling author, inspirational speaker, host of the popular Sherapy Sessions, Cutting Toxic Family Ties podcast, a well-known social media influencer, and a regularly featured media expert. Hi, Dr. Sherry. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation today. I know our listeners will get a lot of value from your expertise. So thank you again for coming to talk with us about adult survivors of toxic family members. Super excited. I'm super excited. Thanks for having me. So as we kick off, um, we thought we'd start with asking you, how would you define a toxic relationship? A toxic relationship in general is sort of a one-way relationship. Um, There's no ownership on one side. There's a ton of blame, lots of confusion. Um, You know, if you stand up for yourself, you're an abuser. And if you don't just acquiesce to that other side, then you have no peace. And so... These people have no empathy, really, and they're unable to show a maturity to see another side other than their own. And so when you talk about a lack of empathy, what are some common traits that are found in a toxic person when you're entering into one of those relationships you could be on the lookout for? Uh, Selfishness, but I would really look out for charm first and sort of a golden period of of love bombing and making you think that this person is perfect. The minute you think someone's perfect, you probably should step back and take a look at this, whether it's a boss, a new boyfriend, a friend. Um, And they tend to move the, the intimacy of the relationship very quickly. Even if it's verbal, wanting to get to know you, they seem so curious. Uh, But you have to be careful because you could be giving information to a predator that then they use all of your secrets against you later. And so, you know, you have to be aware of those things. Yes, the charm feels good, the warmth, the curiosity, but is it? Um, Take your time. It's not about being paranoid, but the brain on an fMRI, which is the brain imaging scan, you can't tell the difference between someone high on cocaine and newly in love for 18 months. Whoa, <laughs> that's kind of crazy. Um, 36, you know, if you still like the person 18 months in the second half, then, you know, you're seeing the real person at that point. Mm-hmm. You mentioned love bombing, and I think that's a term that's come more into the the zeitgeist. Can you talk about what that is and what it isn't? Well, love bombing, I guess if you're going to go romantic, is is hard to tell the difference. But if it's your parents... You'll go from being idealized to you getting comfortable in that space. Then you're devalued and it's kind of slowly, they sort of dismember you emotionally with slow, critical things. Then they just completely devalue you. Then they suck you back in and you get idealized, devalued, discarded and sucked back in. So whenever you go from the bottom to the top, it it creates an addiction to hope. So love bombing um, creates a tremendous amount of hope that things are fine now. And when children trust that, what's happening is the magical, innocent emotion of hope is being manipulated. 
So as we're talking about love bombing and manipulation, one term that I think we can't have this conversation without talking about is gaslighting. And (laughs) could you talk a little bit about gaslighting and the role it plays in these toxic relationships, especially in the beginning when you're a little bit unaware of what's going on? Gaslighting is when you go and you say, you know, when you said this, this hurts my feelings and you get, I didn't say that. And you're thinking, well, I didn't hallucinate it. So, and you try to go back in. No, I remember you said, blah, blah, blah. You can even pull up a text and be like, well, I didn't mean it that way. You took it that way. So no matter what, there's this circular dynamic where you are always questioning if you're too sensitive, if you just took it the wrong way and it's corrosive. So enough of that. And it starts, you start questioning yourself too. Like maybe I am too sensitive, you know, but you're not, you know, you have to learn to follow your gut. But if you're raised by people who gaslight you and you didn't have any healthier experience, then gaslighting kind of becomes your norm And you grew up pathologically not trusting yourself, which creates problems as you go out to try to start relationships outside of family. I wonder um, your opinion as an expert in dealing with gaslighting. Do you find that the public awareness of this term is is for like a good cause or do you find it to be detrimental that people are throwing around this term for a lot of things that maybe aren't gaslighting? Well, what's happening is that toxic people are accusing healthy people of gaslighting. Toxic people are accusing healthy people of being toxic. So that isn't effective. And and I, you know, I know that there's fads. When I first wrote my books, toxic wasn't the fad and now it is. And I'm trying to move a little bit away from it because um, it's starting to become cheap. It's, It's not understood as that toxic is the fullness of the cluster B personality disorders and the combination of how they all intermix. So gaslighting now, I think, has become an even more advanced skill set because the toxic person is so aware now, even in the media, how effective it it really works. So I, I do think that some of that can be detrimental. So really, people have to pay close attention to how they feel. And instead of doubting how they feel or regretting standing up for themselves, I mean, if you if you get kicked back because you stood up for yourself, then... Maybe you need to question what's going on in front of you. So as we're talking about gaslighting and like we've said, gaslighting and toxic are terms that have really become popular um, and like you said, efficacious as well in um, kind of dismantling a person's reality a little bit inside of a relationship. I wondered what are some self-protection measures someone could take after you know they're aware that they're being gaslit? Because I know for a while until you know you know, you're, you're kind of vulnerable there, but what would your advice be about protecting yourself? Stop engaging. Hmm. Okay. I, I, this is coming in a new book, so I'll, I'll give you a sneak peek of it. But one thing that I've struggled with as a survivor is this idea of boundaries and the way that the literature writes about it is they write about setting boundaries really in healthy dynamics. So, you know, wow, Kendall, when you did this, it really hurt my feelings. And you'll be like, Oh, dang, I'm sorry. I won't do that again. I didn't know that I had hurt your feelings. I'll, I'll take ownership of that. So then that means with setting a boundary, I have some level of control over your behavior in my life. Okay. Let's now apply that to a toxic person. Kendall, you're toxic. Wow. Kendall, 
when you did this, it really hurt my feelings. You're like, oh, no kidding. So I hit a wound. Cool. Now I know to hit that wound again, and I can hit it this way, this way, this way, and this way. So then the next thing I know, you're crossing the boundary I just set. If I go now and try to control your behavior in my life, I'm going to lose because now I'm going to give you more information on why that hurt because I'm going to think I must not have explained that boundary well enough. So I'm going to give this person even more information on how to hurt me. So at the line of tolerance, when you're setting boundaries on a toxic person, you have to have self-control, not other control. So what that means is at the line of tolerance, you don't give a, a reaction or attention. You stay silent. I'm never asking anyone to lose their voice. What I'm asking you to do is to not waste it. So if you're going to get your voice wasted, then don't use it. Don't repeat yourself. When someone gaslights you, it gets you into repeating yourself. My thought is step back, take a minute, which is very hard when you're being frustrated like that, but just take a minute, which is self-control and think, did I tell this person everything they needed to know? If your answer to that is yes, stop talking. The more you talk, the more dismembered you're going to become emotionally. The crazier you're going to look because the crazier you're going to feel, the harder you're going to stand up for yourself and they win just one round after another round. So I grew up with a mother that was very much this way and uh, I never won. (laughs) So I had to learn that boundaries the way that they're written give us healthy people hope that with any person which is a falsity that if we tell them what hurts our feelings that they will use it for good and stop doing that it's not how it works and it's not written about so that's my job and I want to ask a little bit more about how you came to this work and how you became sort of this this expert on the topic so I'm a survivor first I grew up in a pathologically toxic family. I'm in the 14% of people that have two parents that are toxic, not one. There's usually one dominant power holder and that other parent is passive. So they're sort of abusive by proxy. You can kind of have a silent relationship with them outside and underneath the power holder because the most toxic person in any dynamic is also the least confronted because there's always a cost. So, you know, the, the, the passive parent, I think, does mean well, but it sort of lacks logic that they're keeping you in this scenario and making it good on the back end. They're not really taking up for you. So you're not learning to have a voice. So I had two, my dad overtly aggressive, my mother passive aggressive. Um, so I was in that 14% of, of those who just suffer. And I, I was suffering for years, it took me 45 years to, um, well, they cut me off and I decided I didn't have it in me to mend the fence anymore, which was my job as the fence mender and the scapegoat. So um, I felt no better time than now to turn my predators into a purpose and see if I was really alone in this, like really alone, or if there were others like me. Um, unfortunately for someone like me, all the literature kind of let me down because I felt like I would read a book on parenting or parents that aren't healthy. 
And by the end of the book, I'm being labeled something else. You're like this because your parents were like this. So you fix you, keep a few strings attached and find love outside the family. So I tried all that and I just got myself deeper in pain because it's an impossible ask and, and, a, and a selfish ask for any of us to go ask other people to fill in uh, for wounds they didn't create and therefore they can't heal. And I really didn't see how I would be such a bad person that I'd have to feel guilty if I didn't have a string attached. If, if like I have a limb and this limb is killing me and I can't walk and I can't move. So all I do is I just want relief from the limb. So I amputate a part of myself that I don't fully want to. I don't want to at all, actually, because I would never want to lose a limb. But I have to have relief so that I can live and be happy. And that's the only way that I can explain it is I've had to amputate parts of myself for reasons I don't fully understand. Because one thing I will never fully understand is the is the lack of empathy that a parent can actually have toward a child that they brought here. So I was, they had me, but didn't want me. So I had to amputate a part of myself and no, I don't need another label. I really don't need another flipping label about this type of person I became because of my toxic parents. Someone recently said to me in an interview that I've written the most unsafe book that will bring people to safety. Such a huge compliment. And she said, the big speakers don't talk about this. And I, I had to have go up the mountain with like no footprints in front of me, let alone to externalize it in books. So it's been a journey. Just going back a little bit to talking about the boundary um, of setting a boundary with a person who could use that information to hurt you, I I just wanted to point out that I've actually never thought about boundaries from that point of view. You know, you always see it as healthy person, healthy person, make the boundary, they'll respect it or they won't and will readjust. And I think that your position as a survivor and your perspective on the subject really gives you that uh, authority to speak from that place. And, and a lot of the topics surrounding this, as you know, you and I have talked about, it can be controversial cutting ties. And you're met with a lot of opposition around that because people don't understand. But the people who do understand, including yourself, get it. They get what that's like. Yeah, they do. They do get it. You know, I've, I've finished another book that's just, my books seem to be peeling an onion, right? Um, I feel like my books write themselves. I, I, don't feel like I have a choice. They sort of take over. Um, but these new concepts are just pouring out. And um, my writer has saved my life. Uh, I didn't have a voice. And so I found writing. I never thought I'd write a book, never have the, had the intent. Um, and as I'm writing this new one, following adult survivors that we're talking about today, it's it, it's made me just continue to grow in these this literature on boundaries, although helpful and educational, didn't help me. And I know that other authors that have written on toxic family or toxic parents or whatnot, I keep getting labeled something or I'm not given the full permission I need. It's always the last resort. Well, this is confusing for me because when a child starts externalizing their pain, why is it 
that the people who are raising them are the last thing on the list examined for the contributing factors. Why is that? The child is just considered a bad egg and possibly culture and politics and this and that and gaming and all of these things, right? But we don't want to call out bad parenting for what it is. Our culture protects parents and leaves people like me unprotected and labeled as bad. So the message I'm getting is if I were just easier, my parents would have been better. I don't have a skill set for that when I'm a child, unfortunately. Okay, so I had, I've had to save myself. And so this is the way that I've done it, as I've educated myself. It took me 45 years, by the way, to cut ties. This isn't cancel culture. I think that's another thing that gets mixed up is what's the difference between cutting ties and cancel culture? Well, the suffering and time it takes and how many, it's not like, oh my God, you did something to me online and therefore eh, I'm going to cut you off. And then there's a game on, are you going to fight me? You know, I feel that I've honored my mom and dad by accepting their choice to want to be poisonous people. So I do honor my parents and their choice. It's another thing that people don't want to look at, but I do feel like I'm honoring them. I don't like it when people want me to be different than me. I think it's disrespectful. So if this is my parents' choice, isn't it the most loving step for me in honor of them to accept them in that space? That's a really interesting way to turn it around and look at it. Um, And I wanted to ask about, you know, as you were setting off on this journey and trying to see and find other people who were in similar situations, as you're meeting them, do they, do they immediately recognize that it's their parents problem and not them? And sort of talk us through how, how that goes for a lot of people that you work with. They can understand it intellectually but your parents are a part of your fabric. Um, I think it's never healed. I think forever healing. Um, I think acceptance in our situation, and this might just be semantics, but me, me being forgiving of my parents set me up for further abuse. So I don't like the word forgiveness. Uh, I like that I can accept them for exactly who they are. Uh, kind of coming from a glass or reality therapy type of viewpoint or acceptance commitment therapy. Um, forgiveness in many situations can lead you into further abuse. So again, culture doesn't like the idea that you're not being forgiving. I, I do think that I'm happy and I have accepted them and honored their choices. So I, I don't know how better I could do it but it does take a lot of time to unpack the inner critic. Uh, and even today, if, if I have a betrayal or something else, I find myself holding myself responsible for it. And then I have to go in and go, okay, well, wow, the whole betrayal drawer in my brain opened up and there's the inner critic, the voice of my parents. And then I have to work through it, but it's a beautiful journey. If you want to look at it that way, you're forever healing because life is always going to bring us a mess 
we don't get to do like I've done my work, so I should be free of problems. It just that's just not how life is. You kind of have to stand like a mountain and flow like water. You know what I mean? Definitely. Um, and as we're talking about this, I know in your book you talk about toxic shame and how important it is to leave that behind or try to in your healing journey. Could you kind of explain what the toxic shame is that you carry with you in these situations and how someone in the healing process could work on leaving that behind them? So each time that a parent um, blames the unskilled child for their bad behavior, as early as birth, cry too much. You know, I was told you came out screaming and never stopped. So we've just let you cry. Okay. Well, no wonder I'm a little frantic all the time. So I used Eric Erickson's theory of psychosocial development from a different viewpoint. I think what you're learning from me today is I have to see everything from a backward view. Honor thy mother and thy father looks like this. Boundaries look like this. Cause I'm like in stranger things. I grew up in the upside down. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I was in that world. So everything that's right side up here in the healthy world was upside down for me there. And so I've had to do everything a bit backward. Now it's given me, which I never knew this would happen to someone like me, but cause I was the loser kid and here I am, but um, I've had to, had to learn backwards. So Erickson's theory is one of my favorites because it's based in science, brain development, all the things. So Erickson's theories are taught on how to be a good parent. If you're a good parent, you get your kids through these stages like this. So I had to do that theory from the backwards view and look at where shame is developed. So first you lose trust and hope. Then you leave with shame. Then you enter industry versus inferiority, shamed and scared. And it builds upon itself. Your parents don't change as you grow. So you're further shamed all the way along. And yet you are set up to fall down the negative side or the failure side of that ladder from birth. Somehow it's your fault. Because we don't want to call out bad parenting for what it is. Right? We just don't. We protect that and leave the children vulnerable and then tell children that families everything. Well, and I think that's so interesting, too, because I forget the stat, but there's this stat out there of how many people are in therapy because someone else refuses to go to therapy. And th that's just exactly what this is, right? Yeah, like the real told... patient never gets treated. Hands mm -hmm. down, my practice is full of healthy people trying to figure out how to cope with the toxic people in their lives. Toxic people will not go to therapy. And if they go, they don't stay. As long as it's going to be focused on someone else's faults, they're more than happy to show up. Mm -hmm. But the second it turns to them, they are above reproach. Okay? Because there's a lack of self-awareness because they service pride. Pride is so big, um, that they, but it impedes progress. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So... Um, there is no such thing as peace in a relationship with a poisonous person. Earning your continuing education hours doesn't have to be a painful experience. The right course can open your mind to new possibilities, increase your confidence, and hand you powerful tools to transform your clients' lives. Praxis Continuing Education and Training 
teams up with some of the brightest minds in mental health to provide cutting-edge, evidence-based training for practitioners. You can learn firsthand from experts like Stephen C. Hayes, Kelly Wilson, Robin Walzer, Kirk Strassel, and many others. Find your next training at praxiscet.com. That's praxiscet.com. So I want to talk a little bit about cutting ties because I think that's pretty much what we've been talking about this whole time. But I want to get to the heart of why is it so hard to do so? And, you know, what can that process look like at the beginning as you're starting to try to cut those ties? I think I started at 16. But no one wants to be without the most important social group you can possibly belong to. That's like saying, I'd be happy to be paralyzed. Can't wait. Uh, Yeah, you can. Nobody wants that, right? They define you and then you believe them. So not only do you have to figure out who, who, who you are, but you have to figure that out while being poisoned by them. So it's really a hard process. I don't have any skill sets for it because for me, I was just done. Just one day she cut me off because she followed the wrong white car to a restaurant. Tragic. I know. And just annihilated and berated me in front of my daughter. Stopped speaking to me. And I just thought, I don't have any thing in me anymore to mend this fence. It's just done. And uh, there was no discussion. I just didn't mend the fence. And we're six years later. I know that for different people, this journey will, it, it will vary, right? There, there oh, might, yes. it, it will be a long time coming in some cases in others, there will be an event that, um, that sparks the cutting of ties. But I wanted to ask about, so we talked a little bit about external, um, opposition and people kind of weighing in, but I was curious what your vantage point or what your opinion was when people do start to weigh in other family members, you know, you're being so harsh, you're being so cruel. Oh, girl, I have (laughs) every penny, every cent of all of that. Um, I figured every ounce of it, I wouldn't have been able to write about it. Right. So there's secondary abuse. There's post-separation abuse. Uh, there's cultural kickbacks. Um, and nor do I believe that everybody has to cut ties. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think that I would hope you wouldn't have to. I, I would hope it would be you were forced there. I didn't do it because I wanted to. I did it because I had to. Okay. But they don't like to lose. And I wasn't really in a game. I'm just trying to save my life. But in me not mending fences, it became a game. So a very intense smear campaign was started, which is very common. Um, At first, when I was super cute, I would go out and try to defend myself. And it just actually, she could really work that in to see how crazy she is. And I was feeling crazy and I was feeling hurt and desperate to sort of be like, I want the truth out there. So a lot of this is about letting go. And you have to put your own ego down. And I didn't let them win. (laughs) Um, because they'll never win because my truth isn't going anywhere. And it doesn't matter how many lies are told. I think if, if you live your life with dignity, 
and you live it quietly and on purpose, the feeling of who you are is enough. And I had to learn that. Um, and she exposes herself quite well, the more quiet I get. Um, but there are things that are done. I mean, I, uh, um, I was manipulated with a will and trust. I walked away from the money. Um, I, I stopped trying to protect myself in a smear campaign. I sacrificed many relationships for that, that people who believe her, I've no, not one family member of mine speaks to me. Um, they watch me from afar, which I find fascinating. Um, I don't know what they're going to get out of that, but <laughs> okay. I don't want to hurt them. My books are about me. Um, I love them as people. I don't like them. Um, and I don't want people in my life I don't like. I have found that I was taught that those who love me can abuse me. And boy, did that create a pattern for me in many other ways. And so I've decided that liking people is far more important than loving them. So that's something too that are coming in new books and lots of my social media and my podcast and all the things. Um, but I feel that the post-separation abuse is a whole whirlwind. They, they want to starve you back. They want to bully you back and see none of that just feels like love. I want to go back for love. Uh, and so getting away from it and watching what they were doing to annihilate me, although I cried quite a bit and was in quite a bit of shock and sending gifts on certain, but cryptic broken gifts or the most important piece of a gift missing with no gift receipt. So I'm having to call. Um, my father's death was um, held from me. I had to find out on Google. So there was just a lot of things that went down to, to get me back that were savage, but each one of them made me so clear that I made the right decision for me, my child, that the, the, the storm of generational crap is stopping here with me. And, um, and I'm doing it and I'm living it and I'm happy. I'm happy. And that's what's important to me. I might be missing a few limbs, but sometimes people kind of take my family and they kind of cut me with it, almost like they just want to see what's going to bleed from the wound. Because I also think everyone would be afraid to be without a family. And they kind of want to, you know, like I, I was always interested in forensic psych until I realized I'd never let my daughter ride her bike down the street. So I thought, well, I can't go too far down that road. Um, true crime, I'm here for it. <laughs> but um, there's a curiosity people have. And I write a lot about this curiosity in adult survivors because it's not always malicious. It's almost like no one pictures themselves doing life like this, like I'm doing it. They don't know they're cutting me, but they are. It's not a topic I love to share with people who I know just really maybe aren't going to get it. So I have skill sets in adult survivors, actual scripts that you can say in those scenarios to keep yourself kind of safe. And that's called gray rocking. So if you've got a gaslighter, you can gray rock them, which is becoming the most boring rock in a pile, constantly deflecting the conversation back onto the toxic person because we all know they love the stage and you kind of escape out. And it might look like pleasing or be very similar, but gray rocking, you're doing it from a place of empowerment. Pleasing tends to come from fear. 
I like that gray rocking. I think that's um, really important skill to have, especially when someone is constantly gaslighting you. Um, I wanted to ask about permission and giving yourself permission to cut these ties with your family and why that's so important to do that for yourself. Because culture basically says that if you want to be deemed a good person, you can't cut off from family. I'm not sure who made that measurement, um, but I'm certain that in many scenarios, that measurement's only unfair to one person in that dynamic, which is the person who wants to cut off, including parents maybe who want to cut off from a toxic child. They could be viciously accused of being an abandoning parent and uncaring, okay? Um, but I think that cutting off is, is we each have the birthright to happiness. I believe that if someone, anyone, including a parent is robbing you of your birthright, then I think you have permission to take care of yourself. If we were all supposed to be one, we wouldn't have individualized bodies, minds, souls, and fingerprints for crying out loud. We're each here as such a unique expression of this life that we're in. So that would mean that we each individually need to be a good governor of one and do what we need to do to make this world peaceful and happy. And if that means you have to cut off from family, then you have permission. With permission. So I know there's a lot of work that it goes on internally to build up to that place where you feel like you can give yourself that permission to uh, cut ties from a family member that's been causing you a lot of harm Um, But I wondered in your book, you talk about core wounds and I wondered if you could elaborate on that a little bit and how, how deep those wounds can go and kind of how that shapes you as a person um, and how you can kind of move out of that into the survivor uh, status that, that you are. Right. So it's so funny again, in trying to find myself and going through therapy, you hear words like triggers and core wounds and love yourself. And I was always like, yeah wait, what? Like, what is that really? Okay. Wait, how did I get that? Okay. I, no one unpacked it for me. Love yourself almost felt flippant. Like, yeah, okay. I'll just go right ahead and do that. Cause I know that formula was raised by parents who hate me. So let me just jump on that. Right. It was just something seemed all obtuse and in some ways just so minimizing. And so I don't think without a science, uh, like what I did with Erickson's theory of of psychosocial development that largely involves, uh, you know, the brain and its development. And and we can prove that abuse changes the way that the brain reads genetic material. That's absolutely proven. So, you know, as you're going through your your growth and your core wounds, I have I'm creating um, the template right now for a workbook that would cover adult survivors and the new book that I want out first because I want the workbook to cover both. Um, I do a whole bunch of things. One of the things uh, in my book is a is a I don't want to say the word you know it's a bad word but fu four okay. <laughs> Because we're not really allowed to be angry at parents without being accused of being crazy and mean child. And But when someone is, is manipulating hope, hope will turn to hate. Um, and hate isn't an um, a unhealthy emotion. It, it actually just brings some clarity and an end to something. 
It's also not a sustaining emotion because we're not designed to hate. So finding your core wounds means looking at where did it all start? Who were the power players? And what did you learn about yourself? Well, I learned I wasn't smart. I learned I certainly wasn't good enough. I learned I wasn't wanted. I learned I wasn't important. I learned that my voice was annoying. I learned that I was too sensitive. So those became my core wounds and my inner critic. And so defining those and helping people map those out with reflection questions that I used in the book, I can't tell you the reach out I get on this book every day. A lot of people are afraid to leave reviews on a book like mine because they're public. And this is still such a silent epidemic. Even to have my book in paperback is scary for people because of what the title is. Okay. So it's, it, again, I was, as I shared, someone said my book was the most unsafe book. That was the only one that brought her to safety. So this is why, because we're all so afraid of judgment. We've already been discarded by the family. And then if people know that, maybe their whole society is going to discard me without even asking a question. So it has to be hidden. Also, I think that's just the best review for your book possible. So I love that, that review. Um, I wanted to ask, so shifting post cutting ties and doing the work on yourself to heal those core wounds, what, like, what does it look like post that? Like, you know, maybe you're looking for a relationship or you want to have children. How, how can you move forward from this and and sort of into your own relationship building? So I'd already married my mother by the time. Yeah, I married and divorced my mother through a husband, had a baby. But having London um, and having a little girl, um, wow, did that bring to light that I was giving her things I'd never received. And it was so natural for me that it, it put the mirror up big time to what I was going through. And I, and I couldn't, and my daughter didn't also like my mother overbearing, invasive, you know, all the things that she is. And so when it became just so emotionally violent around the car, um, definitely was not our, our biggest wounding abuse moment, but it was the one that broke the final weight of my ability to tolerate it. Okay. So I had been in therapy since 16 and, um, we tend to repeat unconsciously. So I look at it all as a gift. I think I had a very successful marriage because I knew it wasn't the right one for me. Um, And it gave me a gift of insight deeper into the healing of who I am. And um, I choose not to see it as a failure because without it, I wouldn't be here. And I repeated several other patterns and I I had to go in and really unpack them and, and bring a tremendous amount of humility into the therapy office. Um, I'm a shrink who sees a shrink. I wouldn't see a shrink who doesn't see a shrink. I think that one of the first questions in interviewing a therapist is you should ask them if they see a therapist. Because if if you're not constantly involved in your own process, you really can only take your patients so far, right? And books are great, but they don't talk back. You know, it's kind of nice just to have the, the healing of the consistent relationship that's healthy. And I write about this in adult survivors, right? There's not a miracle in every session, 
but it's the consistency of the healthy dynamic that's always sort of reminding you what healthy would look like, what it would be like to be helpfully heard, what it would be like to give healthful feedback that might be kind of hard to take in, might hurt your pride a little, right? So also you become just a better therapist in the room when you're doing your own work. So, you know, I think that going into your core wounds and doing that, it's a, it's a journey. And I think it's the amygdala and hippocampus make that a constant space of healing. And you can just develop beautiful wisdom around that. And you have more access to emotional control. Instead of feeling totally out of control, you can develop a real beautiful presence of mind. You can poeticize your presence and you don't have to respond right away. You don't have to respond at all. And you can know what's your stuff and what's someone else's stuff. A lot easier when you're clear. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the self-care that comes with dealing with, you know, this is a lifelong journey, I'm sure. This this uh, loss never leaves you um, in some way. And I know that a big component of this feeling is loneliness, um, no matter the family you create around you or the community of people who have been through it, there's this through line of loneliness. And I wondered what was your advice on some solutions or ways to kind of take care of yourself when those feelings come about and try to help you navigate that? Well, I definitely think that um, your environment's important. I mean, no, the, the listeners won't see, but I have a healing room and this, this, this guy painted my life behind me is like a womb. It's a huge love sack. And there's someone in front of me and someone on the side. So I'm, I put my pain behind me and I'm looking at the woman I want to be in front of me. And then who I am today is, and this, this guy's just a master. He just painted my life. So I create an environment first that I can go into. Um, I talk about it. I journal a lot, a lot, a lot. It's amazing what will happen when you write pen to paper. Uh, it's not quite as powerful and Harvard has done a study on this when it's typing. When you put pen to paper, there's a different mechanic going on kinesthetically that connects you very deeply to the right brain because your left brain's distracted by the act of writing. And um, if you really want to get to know yourself, start writing. Read, 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 read. Get outside, get D3. Whatever you feed your body, you feed your brain. Sleep. You know, I, I am a tragic sleeper. I take about 10 different supplements to sleep. Um, but I do sleep and I, they're all natural, but um, I, 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 my set point is high on anxiety. And so I recognize that's just a part of the way I've learned to be diagnosed ADHD. Am I CPTSD for sure? The medication helps. I take a little bit of Vyvanse. Um, I can write a book in four months and I can't get a check in the mail. So let's look at why. Well, I had to survive one massive trauma after another. All the things that my peers were good at doing homework, sitting down, focusing and all the things. You kidding me? I needed school to help me come home. People go to school so they're better in life, prepared, educated. No one was helping me come home. So I'm not good at little things like I'll wash and dry my laundry. And to me, I'm like, I cannot believe I'm not done. I cannot be, I have to fold and put this stuff away. It is like torture for me, <laughs> but I can sit down and write a full book in four months. Boom, done. Get a PhD. Boom, done. Big things I'm really prepared for. 
So I accept this about myself and I don't make it bad anymore. I'm just different. And that's what I would want every survivor to know is like, God, you're so beautiful. Like find instead of being, you know, I can't even do this. I can't get my dishes away or I can't. Well, but you can do all this. So my God, we're all unique. Just sort of embrace what you can do and find the humor in the things that you can't. Like I'm always one step ahead of myself. Can't tell you how many flights of stairs I've fallen down. It's like sad. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, a lot of Chrissy from Three's Company. (laughs) The PhD is probably the smallest part of me. Um, But I, I, I don't need to be lonely if I, if I feel with myself. I used to feel by myself, but in writing and, and going in and finding a relationship and reading and journeying, you know, through all those things has helped me to feel with myself. So I don't feel alone. I love that. And it validates that healing looks different for every person, right? Like it, Absolutely. it may be writing a book, it may be, you know, ordering takeout or, you know, whatever it is, mm-hmm. it it's um, really validating to hear that there's no one one size fits all for sure. No, in fact, I have patients that, that they're obsessed over laundry, that, that the big things were so overwhelming that tasking things are so soothing to them. Right. So we're, we're all going to show up in our healing differently. For me, it, gosh, there's, there's just nothing wrong with being human. You know, there's nothing wrong with feeling, you know, toxic parents make you having feelings really bad. You know, so then we feel like, well, I shouldn't feel that way. Uh, I I really shouldn't be feeling this way. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have gotten angry. I mean, my God, why not? We're all human. So, you know, feel, deal, heal. I mean, I think I've just learned the most that letting go has taken a far greater act of courage than to clutch and hang on to legs I wanted that were never going to work. And no amount of fixing me made those legs better. (laughs) You know, we can't fix other people. So I was just going to say that as we kind of wrap up here, one of the, the big things that we have to acknowledge is is this really open community that, that you have created through um, your work. And you know, by just reading the reviews of your book, people feel so validated and heard and seen in an area that we're talking about is often controversial by society standards to talk about, you know, cutting off a family member that's uh, really toxic to your life. And I just wondered if you had any final thoughts kind of for that community and people who have really found some value um, and freedom from your, from your words. Well, first of all, they're not alone. Um, I'm in the sort of bizarre position of getting recognized out because my social media is so huge and I'm still adapting to who Dr. Sherry is. (laughs) Okay. Cause people will cry, just cry. You've saved my life. It happened twice in Vegas. I was in Vegas with my boyfriend and, and they're like, are you Dr. Sherry? And I'm like, Oh my God, I know her. I know her. I mean, wait, uh yeah. I mean, I'm just like not prepared. Because I was a loser, you know, uh, according to my family. And I was failing. Um, I wasn't set up to succeed. So they feel like they're not alone and they're not alone. Um, If anything, they they inspire me because I thought I was alone. And I didn't know there were so many. 
I have 140,000 on Facebook, I have 20,000 on Instagram, and I don't buy them. I don't buy the likes. But the engagement, I think for me, if you've ever seen my page, the engagement is wild. I mean, it's just so huge and it's so genuine. And I'm so busy that oftentimes I can't even get to it. I don't have a team. I don't want anything to be not me and not authentic. But um, wow, do they help each other? And um, I connect with them in video every Thursday. And there is a path and, and and, and I give a lot of help. In, in social media. Um, I think I struggle now is that I get so much feedback in private and, and just life stories. And there's only one of me and I really cannot advise anyone not under my direct care legally or ethically. And, and I'll get, well, I just want to know this one thing. And I'm like, well, what, but from my perspective, if I gave you some answer and then this caused a massive tragedy, I can't do that. So I need, I feel like I need 20 billion of me now. So I'll just keep writing. <laughs> um, but I'm just happy. I'm happy for them. And they continue to inspire me to write uh, because I see that it's helpful. So it's motivating for me to want to continue to help. Well, I think that's a perfect place to wrap up and really a hopeful ending to the conversation. And um I love that you're continuing to give people hope and ways out um, and building community around that. So thank you so much, Dr. Sherry. It's been so great talking to you. Yes. Thank you, yes. girl. It was so fun. It, it's been a great conversation. In Adult Survivors of Toxic Family Members, psychologist and toxic family survivor Sherry Campbell offers effective strategies for setting strong boundaries after ending contact with a toxic family member and provides powerful tools to help you heal from shame, self-doubt, and stigma. You'll find the validation you need to embrace your decision with pride and acknowledgement of your self-worth. You'll learn how to let go of negative thoughts and feelings. And finally, you'll develop the skills needed to rediscover self-care, self-love, self-reliance, and healthy, loving relationships. Whether you're ready to sever ties with a toxic family member or already have, this book will help guide you every step of the way. Visit our website at www.newharbinger.com and use coupon code PODCAST25 to receive 25% off your entire order. New Harbinger Publications is an independent, employee-owned publisher of books on psychology, health, spirituality, and personal growth. For nearly 50 years, our evidence-based self-help books and pioneering workbooks have helped readers make positive changes to improve mental health and well-being. Founded by psychologists Matthew McKay and Patrick Fanning, New Harbinger is proud to be an employee-owned company. Our books reflect our core values of integrity, sustainability, compassion, and trust. Written by leaders in the field and recommended by therapists worldwide, New Harbinger books are practical, accessible, and provide real tools for real change. Help your clients achieve lasting emotional balance with the DBT Skills Mega Bundle from New Harbinger Publications. This essential collection offers everything you need to effectively deliver dialectical behavior therapy in your practice, including a set of eight exclusive microskills videos to help improve client motivation and treatment. Visit newharbinger.com for more information. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the show, and we hope you might share it with anyone who might benefit from the content. This podcast is not a substitute for counseling with a licensed provider.